grace and peace to you, heirs of the promise given in Christ Jesus. Amen. Play along with me for just a moment, would you all? Stand up. All right, now give me a big smile, a big, shining, glowing smile. All right, that'll do. You can sit down again. Thanks for playing. Uh, our reading from Isaiah this morning, Isaiah 60, verses 1 to 6, starts with the command to do what you just did. Verse 1, arise, shine, for your light has come. Here's a question. Uh, who is this verse speaking to? Who is supposed to stand up and shine? Who is the you here in verse 1 and through the rest of this reading? We can try and find some clues. Uh, whoever it is, in verse 6, this person is told that camels bearing gold and frankincense will come to them. So maybe that's our answer. Because in our gospel reading, we saw Jesus visited by the wise men, who were bearing those gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. So this must be another prophecy given through Isaiah about Jesus. Right, we heard a number of those during our Advent series on Isaiah. This must be Jesus, the Messiah, who's being told to stand up and shine here as gifts are brought to him from afar, gifts of gold and frankincense. That seems like a good answer, but it can't be. Jesus is not the person to whom God is speaking in this prophecy. And I can explain how we know that, but here's a tricky thing. English makes it hard to do so. English is... An incredible language. English, I think, is one of the most flexible and interesting languages in the world, but there's one facet of English which is very limiting compared to both Hebrew and Greek, the biblical languages. We only have one word for you. So I can say to everyone present as I did, I want you to stand up and smile. I'm addressing multiple people. Or I can pick on one person point at them and say, I want you to stand up and smile, and I mean that singular person. Both times I'm just using the word you. Now Greek, one of the biblical languages, the New Testament language, has words for multiple you and single you. English does not. Hebrew has even more ability to distinguish. Greek has this distinction between multiple and single you. Hebrew has the ability to say, you one man, you one woman, you multiple men, you multiple women. Here's the point that I want to get at. In these six verses of Isaiah 60, every single you addresses one woman. Arise, singular woman. Shine, singular woman. Nations will come to your light, singular woman. Now maybe this, <laughs> maybe this leaves us even more confused. Right, who is this woman? Who is God talking to through his prophet? I'm going to cheat a little bit here. I'm going to give you the answer, and then we'll see how we get there. This woman's name is Jerusalem. God isn't addressing one singular woman. He's addressing his people as a whole, but using personified language, picturing them as one woman. And now we think about the these verses that we read. We want to picture her. Jerusalem. She's a woman sitting in darkness. A woman who has felt hopeless, just staring at the ground. A woman who is suddenly called to look up and see blessing upon blessing being poured out on her. A woman who was destitute and alone and is suddenly surrounded by children bringing gifts to pour out into their mother's lap. As we read this text, I want you to think of it this way. It's Mother's Day for Jerusalem. 
Let me tell you how we get her name. I promised I would. All of Isaiah chapter 60 is God speaking to this woman. And if we go ahead to Isaiah 60 verse 14 then, past our text, we would see that God calls this woman Zion. That was another name in the Old Testament for Jerusalem, the capital city of God's people Israel. Not all national capitals have two names, but interestingly, if you think about it, sometimes we treat our capital as one that has two names. Washington, D.C., but we call it Washington, or we call it D.C. Zion, Jerusalem, was where the king lived. It was where the temple was found. So because the city was very important socially, politically, and religiously, those names for the city, Zion and Jerusalem, became shorthand to talk about all of Israel. And we still use national capital names the same way today, right? If you hear someone on the news talking about Beijing's economic plans to describe the plans for managing the economy all of China, right? they're not just talking about the mayor of Beijing trying to attract investment to a city, but the plans being made in Beijing to manage China's economy, then you're hearing the same language, right? A national capital being used as shorthand for the whole nation. Likewise, Jerusalem is sometimes shorthand in the Old Testament for God's special nation Israel as a whole. Here then, and then throughout Isaiah, and throughout the other Old Testament prophets, Jerusalem is used as the name for a figurative woman who represents Israel as God speaks to his people. God pictures Jerusalem not just as an acquaintance, either, as some woman that he happens to know. God pictures Jerusalem as his bride and himself as her husband. And they have a special relationship, just as marriage is a relationship that's different from any other. Uh, just like a husband and wife, God and Jerusalem were meant to walk together. They were meant to always seek to love and serve the other. But, as sadly happens in marriage, sin spoiled things for them. I wrote part of this sermon at the Dix Hills Library. I like to get out of my office sometimes to write in a different environment. And across from where I was sitting that day, someone had put couples court with the cutlers up on one of the TVs. I have not seen this particular program before, but as it went on, I, I realized I know the type of show that this was, and I'm sure you recognize it too. You've got a couple that comes into a courtroom and they ask the judge, in this case it's two judges, these uh, married lawyers, the cutlers, they ask them to adjudicate all the problems in their relationship based on evidence they present to the judges. And it all unravels in the messiest made-for-TV fashion possible. Right? Text screenshots, location tracking data, mysterious clothes found at their house, surprise witness appearances. And you know what? It's all the same. Really? Maybe one or the other turns out to have been a cheater, which is usually the, the central point of the show here, to find out if someone's having an affair. But what we tend to find out is that both of them are emotionally abusive or neglectful, that both of them have been acting out in this relationship vindictively and vengefully. Yeah, maybe one stepped across that particular line, but as we watch their relationship played out through the evidence they present, we see that their sin jointly ruined things. The breakdown in the relationship between God and his bride was not like that. The breakdown in God's marriage was the only time in all of history where there was truly only sin and guilt on one side. No one else can claim such a thing. In Isaiah chapter 50, God tearfully and bitterly describes himself as a husband coming home to an empty house. His wife had already left 
with the divorce certificate which he'd filled out to affirm legally something that was already reality. His marriage had ended. And it was not what God had wanted. What happened? Well, in Isaiah chapter 59, God pointedly tells his people, verse 2, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Again, Hebrew has those multiple words for you. There at the end of chapter 59, it's plural. It's a word that means all of you. God blasts his people in chapter 59 of Isaiah. No one is innocent. No one in Israel escapes blame for the breakdown of their relationship with God. Some of them were liars, he says. Others abused speech in different ways. They spoke wicked and evil things without any thought. Their leading men perverted the course of justice in the courts. Some of them were violent, God tells them. They valued pride over peace. Some were greedy schemers. And at the end of that chapter, God's people raise up their voices together to admit, this is our fault. Verse 12 of chapter 59. Our sins testify against us. We acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, inciting revolt and oppression, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. And with that single confession together, then God's people come into one. And now in chapter 60, they're pictured as Jerusalem. This lonely woman here in chapter 60, sitting in the darkness. She's totally alone. She's too poor to even light a lamp at night. She broke up her marriage, and now she can't even keep the lights on in her Skid Row apartment. And as she sits there in the darkness, no husband to be a companion to her, no children to play around her, she knows that what has happened is her own fault. What were those sins, again, that Jerusalem committed to land her in this spot, to break up her marriage? God listed them. His people told lies. They worked violence. They schemed against their neighbors. Do you notice something about the sins with which God charges his bride? These sins were sins committed against other humans. Israel's sins were in no way special or different from yours and mine. They told lies. So do we. They were prideful and they let that pride get the better of them. So do we. Every relationship which we have with another human being gives our sinful hearts yet another opportunity to put ourselves in first position, to use and abuse. Right, there's a saying, if you want to know what your flaws are, ask your ex. If you want to figure out whether or not you're a sinner, whether you have the capacity to act unkindly and maliciously toward others, don't think about the most healthy, civil relationships you have. Think about the most destructive and toxic and damaging interactions you've had with someone else, and then ask yourself, can I really pretend that I was innocent there? We like to look at those relationships and try to assign more or less guilt. Well, I may have done X and Y and Z, but they did A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, but who cares? Not God. Look at yourself with that kind of clarity. Look at your life and don't focus on the highlight reel, but instead on the moments when all your facades were stripped away and you see what our text describes. Darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples. That's our sin, covering each of us like a cloud, cutting us off from our God and from one another. We join Jerusalem, who sits there alone in the darkness of her own making. But then this voice speaks to her. Arise, 
shine. In this darkness of her own making, Jerusalem is instructed to stand up and shine forth. How? Your light has come. A light has come from outside of her, to her, over her, upon her. This light is the very presence of God. That phrase, glory of the Lord, in verse 1, it's the same Hebrew phrase used elsewhere to describe God's presence in the temple, in the tabernacle, where he is worshipped. The picture here, Jerusalem's husband, right, the one whom she left through her sin, suddenly is standing there in the door with her, for her. He's got an electrical bill marked paid in his hands. So Jerusalem stands up. God guides her hands to the light switch. She flicks it on. And now he tells her, lift up your eyes, look around. She's surrounded by a bustling family. Sons come home, infant daughters bouncing on hips, more children than she remembers having before. And they all come with wealth and riches, precious and costly gifts for her. And one by one, they come forward and give them to her until her arms are overflowing, just spilling treasure. Who would do such a thing? Who would reward and comfort someone who has hurt them? Who would seek out someone who left them? There are sermon notes for today's message in your folder. Uh, maybe you've been keeping up on them. We're on the last one here. The answer to Zion's guilt is not found in her repentance or her making up for it. It is found in the grace. There's the blank. It is found in the grace of her Savior God. The answer to Zion, Jerusalem's guilt, does not come from her self-directed moral improvement or by her sincere restitution of those she wronged. Her guilt is dealt with through Grace, grace. I've given you this definition before. Grace is undeserved, gift-giving love. Grace is love shown specifically by gifting to another person, and more specifically by gifting to an undeserving recipient. That's grace, and it's grace which characterizes every action of our God. Paul the Apostle talked about this in our second reading. Although I am, I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. Paul was an enemy of the Christian church before coming, becoming a missionary and a pastor. Uh, he knew that always for his past he deserved punishment and rejection from God. But instead Paul gave God a gift. Uh, he saved Paul by leading Paul to know Jesus. Then he used Paul to write almost half of the New Testament to share Jesus with thousands of people. And Paul knew that he didn't deserve any of it. He knew that he was less than the least of all the Lord's people. That's why he calls the content of his preaching a mystery. In the Bible, mystery doesn't mean kind of a follow the clues who done it. In the Bible, mystery means a truth, which if God had not revealed it, humans could never uncover. The gospel the message about your salvation was a mystery. Who could imagine that we sinners, we who in word and deed have hurt others, who could imagine that God would come to us, live with us, die for us? That's why we call today's festival Epiphany. The central theme is the revelation of God's gift to humanity. Mary and Joseph sitting in a humble little house somewhere in Bethlehem are surprised by these rich and powerful strangers, the king's sitting in their living room suddenly, pouring out gifts before their little baby. And their eyes meet, and they understand something that they theoretically knew, but hadn't really grasped until that moment, right? They have this epiphany. This is bigger than us. This baby boy is for the world. That's what brings us joy during the epiphany season, the mystery of this baby revealed. He's a savior 
for all people, for you and for me. We are Jerusalem, we are God's people, and we are not left alone and hopeless in the dark. No, Jerusalem has a gracious God. Jerusalem has a bustling family. Jerusalem has a future promised to her. And so in Epiphany, we stand up, we shine, we look around, we rejoice that we belong to the family of God through the forgiveness won by Jesus. And that forgiveness is as rich and unending as the gifts that kids pour out on mom's lap after craft time at school. So happy Mother's Day to you, Jerusalem. Amen.